following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We've been looking at this series in Mark's Gospel and of looking at what does it mean to follow the servant king? What does it mean uh, to, to come along behind him, to attach our lives to his life, to, to begin to look like him, to learn, to speak like him, to, to do all of those things to become like him. And I think one of the, the great things that we wrestled with was even last week of what do we do with our failings? What do we do when we, when we mess up? Because we all mess up. If you are honest about your week this week, you messed up. Maybe even this morning you've messed up. Um, and you're going to mess up multiple times even your thoughts and your motives and all of those things. We had a friend who used to say, I don't, I, here's my goal uh, in life as a Christian. I don't want to commit the same sin twice. And I thought, what an unrealistic view of your own heart. I, I commit the same sin while I'm still thinking about not committing the same sin. Uh, and, uh, and in the midst of that pride and arrogance, uh, going, oh my goodness. And so we wrestled with Peter and the brokenness of his heart as he denied the Lord, but the beauty of Christ coming back to him and redeeming him and restoring him in that way and saying, Peter, I've got you. Now go and follow me. Go and serve me. Today we're looking at the crucifixion. Christ has moved through and he's been on trial, uh, that he has been judged and sentenced, uh, that he now stands condemned, uh, that Barabbas, the uh, the insurrectionist has been set free. The people said we'd rather have this person than we would this innocent Christ. Crucify him as the sounds rang through Jerusalem. And so Christ has been led to Golgotha. That he's been stripped and he's been nailed to the cross. And that's the scene that we're picking up. That he is there uh, at the place of the skull. Outside of the city walls. And he's being condemned as as a cursed man. We need to wrestle with this. I was talking with somebody after the first service, and they said it's a good reminder that sometimes we, we get too comfortable with these things. We forget about the very, uh, very heart tenets of our, our faith, where we think about the crucifixion, we think about the cross, and oh yeah, I got it. But today, I want us to zero in a little bit more. I want it to sort of, I want the heaviness and the weightiness of it to, to sit upon us because it's glorious. And we need to sit and think about our lostness. We need to think about the fact that we are in bondage and we need ransoming. We need uh, to be set free from captors that we can't in and of ourselves set ourselves free from. And that it came at an incredible cost. That Christ's uh, life was given for us. And in that weightiness, in that costliness, then what are we freed to? What are we freed to go and do? So we're going to look this morning uh, at the fact, of, uh, at the thought of what are we in bondage to? Or another way to ask that question is, what are we ransomed from? Then at what cost have we been ransomed? And then what are we ransomed to? Why have we been ransomed? What have we been freed from? At what cost? And then freed to do? And so if you have your Bibles and you want to turn over uh, to Mark chapter 15, or you can look on the screen. And the other verse that we're really jumping off of was the very first verse I preached on when we began this series about 11 weeks ago. And that was Mark 10.45. It says that Christ came not to be served, 
but to serve. And then the second part of that, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're, we're picking up on that word ransom. That he's giving his life to be a ransom for many. Interesting and important word choice there. Not for all, but for many. That he gave his life to save many out of the all. So who did Christ come and how did he do that? And what was it all about? And now we're picking up on this picture of the ransom. What does this ransom look like? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me over to chapter 15, picking up in verse 33. This is the word of the Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women on, uh, looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there, were, they were, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation... That is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I love that statement, took courage. Can you imagine you're stepping in front of Pilate? He said, I want the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and, was, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. Jesus came and said, I give my life as a ransom for many. As a ransom. We don't use that word too often in the context of what it was like in the New Testament days of the ancient Near East, where ransom wasn't that you were under the power of a kidnapper. Uh, that's where we think of ransom today, that someone's been kidnapped uh, and they're going to be ransomed. Uh, that a terror group has taken a journalist or taken someone uh, in the Middle East and they're going to ransom them uh, with a sum of money because they're kidnapped. The, the picture here was you were basically an indentured servant. You were in debt to the point where you could no longer get out of your debt uh, and that you were under the captivity uh, against your will uh, to someone. It has similarities, but you were there and you, had, you couldn't get out of it on your own. There was a picture of helplessness. When Christ used the word ransom, he wanted to convey uh, this picture of helplessness of the person who was in bondage. And so we have to first look at what are we in bondage to? What are we being ransomed from? And 
sometimes it is important to really understand the sinister nature of our condition before Jesus. And for some of you who may be here and investigating, you're tipping your toe back into the church, this may be your condition now. And you need to be very honest about your current condition. Or for those of us who are believers, it's important to remember from where we came. Who were we before Christ came? And it says that we were under the power of sin and death that we were under the power of the law, uh, that we had taskmasters, that we had masters who were so powerful and, and so horrible and that their mastery of us was leading us ultimately to death. It says that Adam and Eve in the garden, when they were given all the freedom that they were appropriated in the garden, that they could do anything they wanted with one exception, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of that tree, surely in the day that you eat of it dying, you will die die is what it says. That in the day that you eat of it, Adam, in the moment that you take this bite and you think that your eyes will be opened, they will be opened, but not to the glories that you think they'll be open to, but they'll be open to the pillaging of death itself. And you will be cast out of this garden. And you will be thrown out into wandering. That you will become sojourners in a world in which you were designed to steward, in a world in which you were designed to lead, in a world in which you were designed to be the head of, and you will now be under its authority. You will be under the principalities and the powers of this world, and ultimately you will experience death. Have you thought about the powers that had taken, that took place there as they were cast out? And then God said, and by the way, you don't get to enter back into Eden ever again. Because I am placing a, a, a fiery uh, angel, there are an angel to the entrance of Eden, and in its hand are fiery swords, and you can never enter back in again. You've lost what I promised to give you. And now that is the condition of mankind prior to coming to know Jesus Christ. It is utter lostness. It is utter helplessness. It is bondage. Have you ever considered for a moment someone who is wrestling with an addiction uh, to alcohol, what has bondage to them? What has, what has got them in bondage? Do you realize what it is? It's a grape. It's a fruit. It has dominion over an individual. Someone who's addicted to tobacco, do you know what has dominion over them? A leaf cocaine and heroin, a flower or a leaf. What has happened to us is because of the fall, we have entered into this dominion that's over us and we are helpless to get ourselves out of it. We can rattle the chains. We can say we don't like it. But for most people, they don't even realize they're lost. They just sort of come and acquiesce to a point where they say, oh, it's fine. And God is saying you are utterly lost. The scripture says that Christ comes because we are under the dominion and bondage of sin. In Romans six seventeen, it says this, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. It says you were slaves of sin. You were caught up and captivated by sin. That everything you did uh, was sinful. And, and there was nothing that you could offer to God. That you were aliens and that you were more than aliens and orphans. You were at enmity with God. You were enemies of God. You were under a different kingdom and a different king and a different bondage. And you couldn't free yourself, is what he said. 
And he said that ultimately this sin, that you were under the bondage also of the law, that it says in Romans 8, says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You realize, I'll ask you a trick question. Are you saved by grace or by works? Yeah, it's grace. No, it's actually both. We are saved by grace. But somebody had to work. Somebody had to perfectly obey the law. Somebody had to come in and perfectly do, by his work in this world, had to offer to God a perfect substitute to our messed up record. And so we are under the condemnation of the law. You know what the law, it says that the law uh, is the, the pedagogy. The law is that thing, it's that mirror which shows us our sinfulness. And we think sometimes that we go into a room, if you go into the bathroom and you're covered with dirt and you look into the mirror, what, do you, what is the mirror's purpose in your life? We've talked about this before. The mirror's purpose in your life is to show and expose your uncleanliness, your dirtiness. And here's what we do as Christians. We go, oh, we look at the law. The law shows us that we're failures. The law shows us uh, that we can't uh, obey perfectly. But here's what we do. We grab the mirror off the wall and we try to cleanse ourselves with the mirror. How silly is that? Because the law just exposes our sin. The law condemns us. The law reminds us that we're utter failures. And we're under its curse for those who have broken the law even in one little point. One little point are condemned by the whole law. So if you think that maybe you've gotten away with it, and as the rich young ruler said, I've done all of those things. I've obeyed the law perfectly. And Jesus said, i got one more for you. Go sell all that you've got and give it to the poor. You know what Jesus was showing him? He was saying, you forgot the one that says, I'll have no other gods before me. Because you're serving another god. You're breaking my law right now because you can't get rid of all these other things. That's your salvation. That's your hope. And you think your righteousness is going to save you. See, we're under this condemnation to the law. We're under this condemnation and bondage uh, to fear and, and to sin. And ultimately, we're in, we're in bondage to the fear of death. There's a wonderful book that uh, I read with, uh, with one of my sons who was on uh, philosophy and Christianity. And it says that both philosophy and Christianity, uh, secular philosophy and, and Christianity are trying to answer uh, and deal with the problem of death. Everybody's trying to figure out the problem of death. That we're all under bondage to it because you know what we all have in common? We're going to die. I know that doesn't come as cheery news to you today, but you're going to die. And you have to deal with that reality. And so Jesus comes and says, you're under the curse of death. And then Paul, though, writes this says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, what we've been talking about. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That we're overwhelmed by sin and death and the power of the law, and we're in bondage to it. We live our whole lives trying to figure out how to get out from underneath its bondage. We're in bondage to guilt and to shame. It says that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and instantly it says that they realized that they were naked and they were at shame. 
They were naked before one another. And they experienced something they'd never experienced before. Shame. And guilt. Some of you are still experiencing the shame and the guilt of your past. And you are working so hard to free yourselves from it. And you're in bondage to them. We're constantly in bondage. We find ourselves in bondage to these things. And we demand life from them. We demand life and we, we, want, to, uh, we want to say that we're free. But at the end of the day, we're in bondage. And so Jesus has come to free us from something. He's come to free us from these incredibly sinister and dark lords who are over our lives. Death and sin and the law and fear and shame and guilt and all of these things. Jesus says, I've come to be a ransom for you. I've come to pay the debt. And so what he's coming to pay is he's coming to pay a debt to God the Father. And it's going to say, God, my Father... I am going to pay the debt and it is going to be a perfect payment and it will now take care of all of the rent, all of the debt that has been accrued on behalf of those for whom you've given to me. And so he comes and so we ask, we have to ask now the question, at what cost were we ransomed? What's the cost of the ransom? If you thought that something was of minimal cost, you don't treasure it much, sadly. But if something is precious to you and has a deep cost to you, it's incredibly precious. I remember when I was going to go on the mission field with Youth with a Mission. I needed to raise a bunch of money, and I was right out of college, and had all I'd raised was my debt level. And I didn't know how to get out of debt, and I didn't know how to raise the several thousand dollars that were needed. And my mom and dad said, well, just send out a letter to some of the, the folks in our church at Forest Hill Church in Charlotte. And to see if maybe they'd be willing to partner with you and, and to send you onto the field. And I received a, a letter, a handwritten note, from this incredibly sweet widow in the church. She was in her late 80s, fixed income, no money really, and a very affluent uh, young uh, baby boomer in church. And she sent me $5. And she said, I want to help you get to the mission field most precious gift because I knew it was costly. I, I knew it cost her something to care for me. It was like we were talking about with the widow's might recently, that it was costly. You hold something most dear when you realize the costliness of it. And I'm not talking about the price tag per se. Just because it's a lot of money doesn't mean anything. A thousand dollar gift to someone is really a dollar gift to someone else. But it's not that. It really comes from, from the heart. And what we see is the costliness of God's paying of your debt. That Jesus Christ looked at his Father in all eternity. And he said, Father, I realize that your wrath is going to be poured out on all of those who have broken your law. And I'm willing to come in and I'm willing to live the perfect life in place of many, not of all, but of many, the, Christ, the, the scriptures use this word called elect. And for some of you, you've now tuned out and you won't listen to anything else I'm going to say. And it's sad because it's a biblical word and it's a biblical concept that basically says this. God sent his son Jesus into the world to save those for whom he brought out of the world to give to Jesus. And Jesus says, I will perfectly save them by my life and by my death. I will save all of those, Father, for whom you have given to me. 
And so Jesus came in and he and the father, he said, here's what it's going to cost. And Philippians 2 said this. For Jesus, knowing that equality with God was not a thing to be grasped, emptied himself and came down and took on the form of a bondservant, even a man, and lived among us. And he suffered in this life. Think about what it cost Jesus. Think about who he is. Who's Jesus? He's the second person of the Trinity. He was that who called. He was the agent of creation who called into being all things. And Jesus now, the perfect law was set in place out of his own being. And now he condescended himself. He humbled himself so much to come and to live under the very natural laws that he set in place. To suffer hunger and coldness and rejection. To suffer under the principalities and powers. But yet to do it absolutely perfectly. And then in human terms to come and to, to suffer. Think, parents, when your kids rise up against you and start to sort of, hmm, they're going to straighten their back and they're going to throw their head up and they're going to talk to you like they know better than you. Where does that strike you? Does it land anywhere for you? I know where it lands with me. And I remember where that happened with my dad one time. I thought I was bigger and better than him. And he reminded me very quickly, boy, that's usually what that conversation begins with, or young lady, or girl. He said, don't forget who I am. I'm your father. And you will not speak to me that way. No earthly father would submit himself to the child. But Christ was willing to submit himself to the arrogance and the audacity of created fallen human beings who judged him, who determined him guilty of a law that they themselves broke, who had a mock trial, who spat upon him, who beat him, who laughed at him, who mocked him, who wagged their heads at him. And he, he stayed on the cross, not because of the nails. Don't you think the Lord of the universe could have gone, gone? Just by thinking, he didn't even have to speak, but yet in his willingness, he was willing to suffer under and condescend, condescend himself under the very created order that he himself made. It was costly to him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was there weeping before his father and wrestling in agony with his father because he knew that it was also going to cost him something more. He wasn't just physically going to suffer, which he did. He wasn't just emotionally going to suffer, which he did. But he was going to spiritually suffer. Because he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. This cup that James and John had so arrogantly and with such lack of self-awareness said we can drink that cup. And Jesus said it is a cup. It is a cup that no man can ever drink except for the Son of Man. And he took that cup from his Father and he knew what was in it. And on that cross you can see it, you can hear it in his voice, in those words which are written for us there in the Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi. Lama sabachthani. The son looking at a father. Going, Dad. Don't turn away your face. Because if you turn away your face, Dad. That means I experience hell. That means I experience a wrath. 
that I don't deserve, but I'm willing to take on, that these people, these ones who mock me, they deserve, but I'm willing to take it on. Oh, Dad, Father, why are you forsaking me? Why are you turning your face away from me? You may be here this morning and you could have said, well, I don't believe in the existence of God anyway. I don't believe any of this stuff. Well, you may be then in the same camp of the person who says, I live in a cave a mile down into the ground, and I don't believe in the existence of the sun. And in our short-sightedness and our arrogance, we don't believe the sun exists, but we benefit from its presence whether you believe it exists or not. We benefit from the presence of God's face turned towards us whether you believe it or not. And when his face turns away from you, why do you think the blessing and the benediction at the end of every service is may the Lord's face shine upon you? Because what hell is and the experience of hell is the father turning his face away. One person said that hell uh, is the greatest institution to man's uh, independence that God could ever create. Man said, we want a place where we don't have to deal with you. God said, I'll give you a place like that. And I'll turn my face from you and you will suffer what it's like. Because if you live in a hole a mile down and it may be incredibly cold and you may be able to live. But if the sun blinked off, you would freeze like that. Because there'd be no more benefit that you gained from its existence. Jesus said, I'm willing to suffer that. That's why we say in, in the Apostles' Creed. And he was crucified, dead and buried. And he descended into hell. It doesn't mean that he went physically into hell uh, and preached the gospel, as some believe, to those who were imprisoned into hell. But it says that he descended. He descended into a place of the non-existence where God turned, willfully turned away his presence. Christ suffered that at great cost and great personal suffering for you. Hmm. A couple of things from that I want you to pick up on before we go to the third point. It says in the scripture, Jesus was willing to endure the cross. Great word. If I was to try to run a race, it would be endurance. I would have to endure a lot of pain and a lot of things, and it's just not worth it for a silly little metal. I just decided it ain't worth it. And... Uh, there are certain things that I've just determined I'm not willing to endure in this world. Jesus determined, I'm willing to endure this cross of shame. And I'm willing to endure hell itself. And I'm willing to endure this for the joy set before him. Do you want to know what the joy set before him is? It's seated in your seat. You're the joy set before Christ. You were so precious and worthy that Jesus Christ was willing to die and suffer for you. The Father in heaven was willing to send the most precious thing that he had in the world. He was trying to think and consider maybe in his mind with Christ before the foundation of time itself was when mankind falls. Somebody's got to go redeem him. Who can do that? Could it be Gabriel? Could it be Michael, the archangel? Angels? No, it had to be something so precious and so, so weighty and glorified. And he said, I'm just willing to send my own son to die that you could live. You're that valuable. We live in a world where every day, every week, your value is diminished. 
They tell you that you're not valuable. They tell you that you don't have... I sit with young women in my ministry at different times, but especially when I was on the college campuses. And it's so sad to watch these young women cut themselves. They take knives and they scrape their skin because they bought into this lie that they're not valuable. That I look around on high school campuses and on college campuses uh, and I look at young men and they're trying to find their value and their worth because they've been told that they're not valuable unless they conquer a woman, unless they conquer and have some muchismo, unless they do something. And they're missing the fact that they're incredibly valuable because of the God of the universe said to them, I'm willing to kill my own son because you are that precious to me. That gives you infinite value. That gives you more value than you ever could have imagined. And that's awesome. That, that changes your perspective of yourself, doesn't it? Think about that. That if you looked in the mirror today and you say, you were worth the death of Jesus Christ. It both humbles you, doesn't it? And then raises you right back up. To think that your God in heaven celebrates over you that way. He says, I delight in you like that. You know what else it does? It makes you look around at other people and see their infinite worth and value as well. We have no ground or platform to stand upon to condemn and to look at someone else and say, you are not worthy of the blood of Jesus Christ. But that Jesus Christ came and he paid. And we look around and in that it causes us, it leads us, it forces us to go out and to care for other people and to share the gospel indiscriminately with them. To tell them the good news of the gospel knowing this. That we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it leads us to praise and to worship him. And I'll end with this. The third point is usually a good point. It's just trunk, it just has to get shortened every week, it seems. <laughs> but you're freed to be free. I know that sounds silly, but you're freed to live a free life. It says, for freedom you have been set free. Don't return again to any of the other yokes of slavery. For freedom you have been set free. That you have been free. It says, so if the Son of Man in John 8 sets you free, you will be free indeed. You realize that because Christ has freed you, there are no more chains. There's no more shame. There's no more guilt. There's nothing else that you have to do. You don't have to pay anything. It says that your debt, the debt that you had on your register has been totally not just forgiven. Forgiven means that the bank just took it and said wrote it off of their books. It has been paid in full. That Jesus paid your debt for you and he accounted to you a righteousness that is now yours. And he said, now go live in the freedom of the newness of life that you have. Know who you are and live that way. Do you realize that? Do you realize who you are? We wonder why we don't have much of an impact in the world today. It's because most Christians walk around with their heads hanging low and going, well, you know, this life just stinks, but at least I get heaven tossed in at the end. Wow, would you want to come to church with me? I mean, it's going to really stink. I have to be careful of my words. I want to say something different. I, know I, I caught myself, honey. So It's really not going to be that good, but hey, you get heaven at the end of the day. And we wonder why the watching world doesn't just jump up and down and say, can't wait to join you in youth group today. 
awesome. Just a whole life of saying no to a bunch of stuff that everyone else is saying yes to. Jesus is saying, you get to say yes to me. Why do you think his first miracle was at a wedding feast? Because he said, when I come and when my hour has come, and it's come now in chapter 15, my hour has come. And now the bridegroom has married the bride. And there is a celebration for on the Lord of the dance. You are free to now go and live. You're free to obey the law. You're free to celebrate. You're free to enjoy life. You're free to live without fear of condemnation. You're free to live without anything holding you back. And you know what? I was reminded this week in reading this book. The training of an elephant is is so simple. You know how they train an elephant to stay on that little bitty chain? They do it in the first few weeks of life of the elephant. They put the elephant, the little baby elephant, on a chain. They stake it to the ground. And the elephant pulls against it and pulls against it and pulls against it and realizes it can't beat the chain. And then when the elephant grows up, and and it still thinks that that little chain is going to hold it to the ground. And so there it is, and all it has to do is sneeze, and it could pop the chain. But it's still bound by this tiny little chain. Too many Christians live as if they're still chained to their past. Jesus Christ has broken the chain. He has paid the debt. He is inviting you into the newness of life. He's inviting you into something more that says, you know, I am free to say no to all that other junk that's out there. I'm free to say no to every other God. I'm free to say no because I've been said yes to by the God of this universe. And if you don't believe that, what you need to do is not work harder. You need to look at Jesus a little longer. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light and the glory of his grace. Just look at him. For he's called you there. Some of you today, I want you to hear, he's inviting you into that freedom. He's inviting you today to quit trying to pay it for yourself and to come to him. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing truth that you you wanted to love us and you sent your son to love us and to die and to take and we've been freed from so much at such a great cost and it's been given to us free of charge to us. Father, for some here today, they need that to wash over them. That there's no more bondage to the past. There's no more bondage in that way. That they are now free to be with Christ. And to be celebrated by Him and loved by Him. And if the world rejects them, who cares? The God of the universe says, I love you. The God of the universe says, you have what it takes. The God of the universe says, you are my precious, my beloved. You are that which I delight in more than anything else. For now, when I look at you, I see my son and his radiance in your life. And I love you. And I'm drawn to you. And I draw you near to me. So, Lord, would all of the sirens of this world fade when we hear the voice of our God speak to us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amen.